I'm Maria Huri. I'm the managing editor at the Journal of Palestine Studies, and I'm joined today by Dr. Rashid Khalidi and Dr. Shadeen Saikali, who are our co-editors. And I will hand it off to, to Dr. Khalidi to tell us a little bit about this event. Thanks, Maria. Um, and thanks to everybody who's tuned in. I don't know if that's the right expression. Um, everybody who's with us this afternoon. Um, I know you're all, all of us are uh, uh, watching a lot of Zoom podcasts and panels and so on. So I'll try and make this brief. Uh, I'm going to say a few words about the journal. Um, and then Shireen and I will, will discuss uh, some of the things that are involved in producing an article for the journal writing, and what we expect and so on. Um, the journal is multidisciplinary. It's been published for 50 years. We're very, very proud of the stuff that over several editorships, many, many people have worked on. Um, the, the, what we produce is, is seen by enormous numbers of people. In, uh, in, 19, in 2019, over 200,000 uh, articles were downloaded. In 2020, over 330,000 articles were downloaded from the journal. So people are accessing that whole archive. And what we're going to be talking about today is how you could write, or people can write uh, uh, articles that will, in the, in the fullness of time, join that archive that we're very, very proud of. Um, as you know, we publish articles that span the humanities, the social sciences, the arts. Um, we publish articles on history, politics, uh, international relations, law, economic development, geography, um, obviously sociology and anthropology, gender and queer studies, literature, the arts, and other things. Uh, we publish things on communities uh, that have historical, political, and cultural ties to Palestine. We publish articles on um, the, the way Palestine relates to its regional environment and to the world. Um, and we want to be, that's the, the reason for our doing this today is that we want to be transparent about this process and we want to encourage new scholars to submit their work. We have a great body of people who've done that in the past and we'd really like to encourage people who haven't done it uh, thus far uh, so they know what's expected and, and how they can write stuff that, that will eventually be published in the journal. So back to you guys. Okay, so I, I will start us off. Um, I just want to stress, first of all, that this is a workshop. So we really want to hear from you. Um, any questions that you might have as you write your articles, as you consider submitting to the journal, but we'll just, we'll start off by talking about the main criteria that we use to evaluate article submissions. Um, so the first one is new knowledge. And that's really the question of, you know, what is your article contributing to the already available literature? I'm going to start briefly in the negative and I promise I will quickly move to the positive. So this does not look like you know, a more journalistic or policy-oriented piece that seeks to explain a new peace initiative in the Middle East, or maybe, you know, the inner workings of the Trump or the Bush administration as it pertains to, to Palestine. It also doesn't look like an article where the majority of the body is devoted to a literature review, where you kind of summarize the available scholarship, you comment, you analyze, um, what it does look like is insight that's based 
primarily in original primary source research. And I think that the best way to, to approach that is first to do a literature review and to make sure that you have become an expert of sorts in the available scholarship as it pertains to the topic that you're interested in. After you've done that, you need to think about what are the gaps in the knowledge? What are the gaps in the available literature? And I think that your research and your article should live in that gap. Um, so what that would look like is performing your own primary source research, putting forth an argument, bolstering that argument with the knowledge that you have found through your work and explaining which gap it fills and how it does that. Um, and that actually perfectly aligns with what Shidian will, will talk to us about next, which is citational practices and the, the things that we think about um, as we assess, assess your articles. Thank you so much, Maria. Um, such a pleasure to be on this panel with you both and to work with you um, on the journal. So as, as we've said, um, as both Maria and, and Rashid have said, this is really a workshop format. So we're gonna keep brief our expectations in terms of what we would normally call um, a literature review. Um, in let's say research papers in a university setting. One of the things we really try to do at JPS and we're moving forward on is um, first to move against a kind of structure where you say, here's my argument, here's my methods, here's the literature, and then the last five pages is what you've actually researched. So as Maria said, we really look for, you know, primary exercise that we engage in when we get an article is to look at your footnotes. And in the footnotes, you can find, has this person done original research? Is it archival? Is it ethnographic? Is it surveys? Is it interviews? Is it structural? Is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? So those are visible in the footnotes immediately. The, the, the invitation here is to see um, how to engage, as, as Maria said, one of the tasks that we embark on when we are doing research is to really learn about um, what others before us have said. And I think that sometimes it can feel really um, uh, intimidating to think, oh, we have to read everything that has been said on this. Um, so I guess I would say that we all kind of, um, becoming an expert is an aspirational thing, um, but I also like to, for myself, see it as also being a student. In my own case, for example, now I'm studying Sudan and it helps me to think of myself as a student as opposed to an expert. So when I'm going about doing that research, I, I think, let me get a sense of what is out there on the particular time period and set of questions that I'm asking about on Sudan. And so how do I do that? I do that through looking at review essays. Um, I do that through looking at different debates within the journals of that field. Um, I get a sense of who are the prominent figures, what are the prominent stakes, and what are the prominent debates? So that's just some tips about how to go about kind of, as Maria was saying, gaining expertise in the things that more students in. 
how then do you take that and you bring it into your own research? Often we're trained, and this always drives me crazy in even the undergrad classroom when students are set, are asked, you know, give us your hypothesis statement. And that drives me crazy because it's like, no, actually give, give me your question. You don't have your hypothesis statement yet if you haven't done the research. So generally I would say going into that process with a set of open questions that you're really interested in asking and then figuring out how is it that the research that you're doing actually speaks to the literature at hand instead of the other way around. So there's a certain way that most of us are trained where we say we read all the literature and we find out where are the holes and then we fill in the holes. And I think a lot of people do that and I think that's really important. Another way to do it would be to say here's a set of questions that haven't yet been posed. I'm going to pose them and see how they speak to the literature at hand. So concretely, what does this mean? It means that in an article, ideally, you are, you are um, um, showing us your argument rather than telling us your argument. You are taking us through a narrative that shows us what are the questions that you're asking, what are the um, um, uh, answers that you've come to, and how do those answers speak to the literature that is out there, the scholarship that is out there. And so rather than have a separate section that is literature review and a separate section that is methodology, let the research itself be the backbone of the article, what we're doing all throughout with the methodology and how it speaks to the relevant um, research throughout the piece. And I'll just end here with a note on um, citations. So we just had this workshop, uh, not workshop, sorry, a conversation earlier um, uh, today about, um, you know, how to write about Palestine. And I think one of the things that we, um, we aspirationally would like to continue doing with JPS, and as Rashid posited, JPS is an archive, is really to be capacious, to be generous. Um, to make sure that actually in your citations, the citations aren't just simply about um, showing that you've read everything. It's also a place where you can recognize what it is that people have contributed, how people have allowed us to get to a place where we can ask the questions that we're asking. And, um, and central to that is how do we write? So I'm gonna hand that to Rashid. Great. Um, thanks, Shireen. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build on what Shireen just said, because she actually just gave you a couple of secrets about how people read, not just articles that are submitted to this journal, but how professors read papers. One of the first things we do is we go to the footnotes. And the second thing that we do is we, we, we see how well the paper is written as editors or as people grading. Um, if you can't penetrate the prose and figure out what the person is saying, or if you have to think through a, a, a tangled syntax or bad grammar or whatever, it's very, very hard to get at the argument of a paper. Um, and I, I sometimes, I sometimes am, am disappointed to see the kind of things that a spell check would have picked up. 
to see that a paper has clearly not been carefully reread before being submitted. So just a simple tip, uh, uh, have pity on your readers. Think of the fact that they have to read it and to get your ideas and to get your argument and to get the contribution that you're making. It has to be written in as clear and as limpid and as straightforward prose as possible. Um, many of us as academics or some of us as academics learn to write in a specific style that's you know, appropriate to our, to our discipline. Um, and there's a reason for that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be respectful of the, of the conventions of your discipline. But remember, the Journal of Palestine Studies is an interdisciplinary journal. It's not just for students of literature. It's not just for students of history. It's not just for people who are obsessed with policy. It's for all of those kinds of readers and many, many others. Um, so if you're writing a piece on art, for example, or art history or whatever it may be, you know, the, the Mamluk buildings in Jerusalem or Israeli desecration of this, that, or the other uh, monument. Remember, you're not just writing for people for whom the literature is well-known and the, the way in which people write within that literature is familiar. Uh, remember that you're writing for a, something of a general audience that has an interest in Palestine and it may have some expertise, um, but that your writing has to appeal to not just people who are experts in the things that you are trying to, 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 to focus on. Um, and that means a kind of writing uh, that's, I guess, open and clear and limpid. Um, we get a whole range of styles in submissions and we don't have a house style. There's no, there's no such thing, obviously. Um, but there are some people who, who, when they make a submission to us, it's very clear uh, that they're still writing as if they're in a, in a disciplinary silo. And that's just, that's just usually very hard for other people to read. Sometimes it's very hard for us to read um, if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's uh, uh, something well outside of our own disciplinary parameters. And of course, your article is going to be sent to readers in your field. And for them, that won't be a problem. But we're thinking, first of all, how do we assess this? We, uh, the journal uh, staff, Shireen, uh, Maria, uh, the, the associate editor, Maya, and myself. Um, but also, how will, how will our readers assess it? So I, I, I think that that's the, one of the many things that you should keep in mind, uh, which is that you, know, you want to write something that is valid in terms of a certain disciplinary perspective and that respects the way in which that discipline you know, would have you write. But at the same time, it has to be relatable. It has to be uh, open to uh, people who are not necessarily, you know, don't necessarily share uh, that disciplinary perspective. And I mean, as somebody who thinks, I think I write, and I'm told by you know, my harshest critics, mainly members of my own family, um, that I write, I write very tangled and unclearly and in, a, in, a, in a way that's hard to understand with sentences that are too long. So I'm, I'm, I'm nobody to tell other people what to do. But having read a zillion things over my career, both submissions to the journal and stuff that I read as an academic, um, I can tell you that when a paper comes to you that's easy to read, whatever the content, if, if it's easy to read, it, there's an enormous advantage uh, to the author and to the reader. Uh, so do your best to go over it and untangle syntax. Do your best to make sure that the grammar and spelling at the very least are correct. Uh, do your best not to make the reader do that work 
and in, in, in the first instance, the editors and the peer reviewers. Um, you make them suffer and you harm the chances of your article being accepted, to be very blunt. If we can't understand it because it's not well written, there's less likelihood that we'll appreciate the genius and the, and the intelligence and the work and the research that's behind the piece. So, I mean, what I'm saying is not just that um, you should do this anyway, but you would be doing yourselves a favor. Uh, if you do your best to make sure that the writing is, is clear and limpid and straightforward uh, and, and, and not, not full of the kinds of problems that I talked about. I think I'll stop there. Thank you both. Um, I will now walk us through some of more of the mechanics of the submission process. So first, every article needs to have a 100 word abstract when you submit it. The word limits between 8,000 and 10,000 words. Um, we follow the Chicago manual style, which also then means that there, there shouldn't be any in-text citations, that citations should take the form of endnotes. Um, and I will also explain what happens when you submit your article and it might kind of feel like it's just out there in the ether. So we, you submit the article through Scholar One, which is our you know, document man management system. Shireen Rashid and I will take a look at it, keeping in mind the three criteria that we just walked you through. Um, and at that point, we'll make a decision as to whether or not we want to move the article along for peer review. So JPS has a double blind peer review system, which means that the peer reviewers don't know who the author of the articles the article is and the, the authors of the article don't know who the peer reviewers are. I want to stress also that, you know, this process can take a long time. At the outset, peer reviewers get around 20 days to return their comments. Sometimes they need, you know, they need more time. Um, but after they've completed the review, we'll share their comments with you. Um, and at that time, we'll also decide whether we would like you to revise your, your submission with the, the peer reviewer comments in mind. If you know, the, the article needs a lot more work, we might pass on it in that instance. But of course, at that point, you're welcome to submit it to another journal or to revise it using those peer reviewer comments and then resubmit it as a new submission. And I think, I think that's all in terms of the mechanics. I don't know if Rashid and Shireen, you'd like to add anything else. Well, I'll just add a couple of things because I um, also um, have worked with other journals uh, as, as both of my colleagues here have um, as well. And while I think it is true that the, that the process can take um, you know, that I think if you are, let's say, submitting a, an article to any journal with the hope that you can um, apply for a job and say that it is um, either under review or forthcoming, um, or you're going up for tenure or you're going up for review or so on and so forth, you should really plan for a year before the time between the time that you submit and the time that you see it in print for any for any for any journal any press 
Um, you know, even if you're thinking about a manuscript, you should probably be um, uh, budgeting a year and a half for that kind of um, process. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, I do think, I don't know, and Maria um, is central to this. And so I want you to weigh in, you know, we do really prioritize speedy turnaround at JPS. Um, and that is very much part also of our um, interest in really supporting up and coming scholarship um, and doing everything that we can to um, get new voices featured. And so part of that is really that at every stage we are doing different kinds of mentoring. So the first stage of an internal review basically the three of us are looking to see, okay, is this piece ready to go on for peer review? In other words, we're coming at it and saying, we want to feature this, this work. So what's, how can we empower it to do the best that it can before it goes on? And so at that point, either we're moving it forward or we're sending it back to you and saying, look, if you really, we think this is promising and if we really want it to have a chance, here are all the things that you need to do to make that happen. Then we go to review. And again, you know, by and large, and this is something that I think um, comes back to what Rashid was saying, by and large, reviewers are super generous, um, which means that some of the basics that must be done that need to be done to make the piece um, you know, available for publishing really happens with the editorial team. And here, um, our, our executive, our uh, executive editor, um, Maya Tabit and Maria um, Huri, who's here with us today, are really crucial to the process, right? And so that's where the clarity of writing, um, the following the Chicago Manual of Style, really making yourself familiar with all of those um, processes is crucial. But the takeaway that I really want to impart on people is that this is not a mysterious process, nor is it an, an, an unending one. You can be, you know, we tell people eight to 10 months after you submit something, but generally we do get back to people within four to six months. So we kind of double the time because we want people, we don't want to jeopardize people's review processes or expectations, right? But I did want to just make sure that people knew that we are very committed to a speedy turnaround um, and that we are, you know, we're, I, I think we, um, Todd uh, Bacconi, our um, book review managing editor um, was, and I were talking the other day and he said, I think I'm in, I email Maria more than anybody else in my life right now. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think I'm with you on that. So we're in touch all the time, whether it's on email or text, we're in touch on multiple platforms, you know, so I just wanted to make sure that people heard that commitment. Can I just add one other thing, which is one of the key elements in this process, and Maria mentioned it, I just want to reiterate it, is that when you get to a certain stage in the submission process, everything is dependent on the peer reviewers to whom we send material. And we do not have any means to coerce those people. Uh, they, we don't pay them. They're not, you know, they don't owe us anything. They're doing us a favor by, by, by doing this. They're doing a service to the profession by reading these things. And the people we send stuff to are really good people, people who are very knowledgeable in their fields, which means that unlike the dodos and unlike the 
the, the, the people who do no work in some fields, these are people who everybody knows are good and will do a, job, a decent job. That means that they're overwhelmed with work. Uh, that means that often we cannot oblige them to turn stuff around as quickly as we would like. This is true, of course, of, of, of peer reviewers for articles, but it's also true of reviewers of books. Uh, I've dealt with frustration on the part of authors who say, I mean, I sent my book in ages ago and the publisher had it sent it out to peer reviewers and it's been months and months and months and months. Well, the publisher has no more control over peer reviewers of book manuscripts than we have over peer reviewers of articles. And sometimes that's, that's gonna be a, a holdup. Uh, one person can hold the process up and sometimes we'll go to another person and that means the whole process has to start again. So we are often not the masters and mistresses of our own fate in terms of how, how a, a piece proceeds through the, the, the process that Maria described. Thank you both. Um, unless you'd like to add anything else, I think Laura, we can open the, the Q&A. Yeah, so if anyone has any questions, you can raise your hand and we can bring you up. Um, I'm looking through the list. Yeah, it'd be lovely to see. So you can bring people and we can see them, right? If they have questions. Yeah. No one's raising their hand. So. All right, we're good. Everyone knows how to write an article. <laughs> while, you are, while you are formulating questions, I stuck in the chat. I see we do have a question. Uh, I stuck in the chat a reference to a, a Kate Turabian's uh, basically summary of the Chicago Manual of Style. Um, the Chicago Manual of Style is your Bible. The Turabian is your breviary. If you need to just check, <laughs> what do I do with a footnote? Uh, you can look at Turabian. You should, you should look at the Chicago Manual, of course. There is one question in the Q&A. Uh, I don't know, Maria, if you want to read it. Yes. Um... Okay, so we have a question from an, an anonymous attendee. Um, they ask, how do you suggest we approach our revision process when peer reviewers have given us two different comments? Um, okay, so I would suggest, you know, and I'm, and I'm curious to hear how, you know, so much of this, how you approach this is, is personal, right, um, and subjective. So I would suggest that, um, I mean, first, one of the things that we try to do um, at JPS is also, um, when we're in communication with you, we do have open channels so that if you get two contradictory reviews, we usually write pretty um, extensive uh, uh, comments ourselves on the, the article. So some of the most extensive comments will come from the editorial team, not just from the reviewers. And we will also weigh in on what we think um, is the most important to reflect on. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of journals will ask for um, comments, your author's comments on the reviews that you receive. I tend to feel that this is an added layer of work that we don't really need to um, do. But I think what's important in any process of writing is to figure out what are the comments that challenge you the most 
um, what are the ones that push you the hardest intellectually um, and 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 you know often no one is as harsh a critique of our own of our work as we are ourselves so i would just say to approach the comments that are the most challenging the most inspiring and and the what and the ones that you feel are really generative for your own research process and not simply about the reviewer themselves and what they are interested in right so really ground however you are responding um, with a commitment to what you would like to show um, rather than anything else Thank you, Shireen. Um, we have another question. This person is asking for early career scholars, what are your tips around navigating fields where Palestinian voices are non-dominant and marginalized, yet it is essential to be writing and publishing within such fields and problematize existing practices within them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I guess all of us have faced it at some point in our careers, and many of us are still facing it. Um, so it's a fab fantastic question. Um, I mean, I suppose that you can feel a little bit like Don Quixote going up against the windmills, where everybody in a field is uh, sometimes even seems committed to ignoring um, Palestinian voices or issues relating to Palestine. Um, you know, there are all kinds of strategies. Uh, one of them is to take the thing on head on uh, and to say, as, as the question implies, to problematize existing practices within the fields. Uh, what is wrong with the way this kind of ethnology is being done? What kind of sources are being ignored in historical research and why it's important to bring them up? Uh, why uh, all accounts of this or that uh, event uh, are from the top down rather than from subaltern uh, positions. And it depends obviously on the field. In some of them, it's much easier to ally yourself with a subversive or with a radical or with a, a challenging trend to hegemonic approaches. And in others, it's probably a little more difficult. Um, but th that, that would be my, my, my best answer. That Shane or, or Maria, do you have any, anything to, to say? Uh, to I would just add a lesson that I always keep um, uh, close to my heart that from um, Michelle Rolf Trio, which is know the rules so you can break them. Know the rules as deeply as possible. Go to the table better read and better informed than anybody else there so that you can make your argument and stand your ground. You have to be better than them when they're when they when they have you down like that. That's absolutely true. And he knew whereof he, he spoke. He was a Haitian anthropologist talking about Haitian history, uh, around which there is an enormous silence. And where there are voices, they're the wrong voices. Move on to the next question. Someone's asking. Um, I'm wondering what is your writing process with respect to your positionalities and alignment between your RQs and your positionalities? I'm assuming RQ means research question. I, I think so, yes. Yeah. 
Mm. You want to take a stab at that one first, Shane? Um, what is your writing process? So let me try and think how, what I understand by this question and sort of speak it back. And if the, um, if I don't get this right, let us know. Um, so here, what I'm hearing the question is, how do you navigate between who you are and the research questions that you're asking, right? Um, and I think that for me personally, I have found um, uh, 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 Donna Haraway and other feminists um, who talk to us really crucially about um, you know, a kind of objectivity, quote unquote, that is situated in your in in your positionality is actually the best way forward. This is the way that I believe um, is the most kind of um, is has the most integrity for me. So what do I mean by that? I mean by it that we are typically trained in terms of objectivity or the way that we uh, read master narratives around objectivity is always centered around this assumption that you can be um, everywhere and nowhere at once, almost godlike. Um, that you can look at research questions from above like a drone and that you can do a kind of surveillance and that who you are, you're not even in the story, you're sort of just hovering above it. And this is a really problematic um, and in my mind, unethical way of going about research. I actually don't think that the question of positionality, the question of positionality is not an add-on, but rather, the, the very location from which you can uh, 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 begin to go about a, a research practice that aims at an objectivity that is about your specific angle of vision. So how I go about it is I start from it. I start from my positionality as a way to be explicit um, about my specific angle of vision as informing my research questions. Um, and taking it from there, not coming at things from above, like uh, a, a, through a kind of godlike uh, assumption, but rather coming to it from critiquing the very position and the angle of vision that I that I bring to it. Thank you, thank you, Shadi. Um, I think somebody would like to to come up to the, the virtual stage. Laura, if you'd, if you'd like to, to open it up. Yeah, I just, I just did. Um, Harriet, can you hear us? Yes. Go ahead. I don't see who's speaking. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you, go ahead. Okay, so what I wanted to ask about was, um, I guess I'm in a somewhat different position from other people in some ways. I'm actually retired and have all written, I'm not going for tenure or anything like that. And my background is in writing and rhetoric um, and also in women's and gender studies and queer studies. But in recent years, I've been involved in um, an endless mega project on Zionism and propaganda. And what's hard for me to really get a sense of often is, what's old news to people and what's not what's the right what's 
a sense of audience and context that I can comprehend. And I, I know that from everything I've read, a lot of people, there, there's been work done on this issue for sure, and a lot of people have touched on it. I think I'm going into it in greater depth, but I'm also doing work that's somewhat synthetic in terms of looking at the history of propaganda and public relations and how they work in putting Zionist propaganda in a context. And um, I'm just not sure what, I mean, I have so many different sections of this book at this point, and I'm not sure what would be appropriate or of interest. And is there a way to ever just have a preliminary conversation about just selecting which materials to send and which you would be most interested in? Should I take a cut at this, Shireen? Yeah, um, this is a really interesting question. Um, because we often get either queries about this kind of, of issue uh, or submissions, which are going back over something that has in some way been touched on uh, by, other, by other authors. Um, and I would have two quick you know, responses to it, though there's no, there's no correct answer to, the, to this question. It's a, good, it's a hard question. It's a good question. Um, the first quick response is have a look at stuff that might have been published in the past in the journal. Because if it hasn't been published in the journal and it has to do with Zionist propaganda, there's probably not that much written about it. There is stuff written about it, but elsewhere. But I would, I would, uh, you know, if I, if you, if you want to see whether a topic that you're interested in has been covered, probably, and it relates to Palestine, probably one of the best places to look is the JPS. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I know that 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 is not something that it would necessarily be terribly easy, but it's something that you might consider. The other thing is to look at the kind of acknowledged people who've done work on this field. I mean, the book that I, I consider my, you know, my go-to book on this topic is Amy Kaplan's wonderful book, Our American Israel. If she hasn't covered it, then you probably are not going back over you know, uh, uh, dead terrain. You're probably uncovering new stuff uh, in what you're doing. And there are very few other uh, scholars like Amy, like the late lamented, uh, unfortunately, she's no longer with us, um, Amy Kaplan, who've done work on this. Um, and, and even if you find that she's done work on something that you want to submit, um, it may be that you're bringing an entirely new perspective to it or, or new information. And I would just add, you know, again, there's no mystery around any of these. This is all about doing the research. So Amy Kaplan's book, uh, reading it very carefully and mining all her footnotes and then mining those footnotes and mining the footnotes of those footnotes, right? This is not a, there's no kind of Pandora's box or something that we don't have access to, right? It's about um, actually kind of really going through all of that, um, all of those resources and honoring it. I mean, I will say that I think one of the things, um, you know, and this came up in our morning panel, something for us to think about. And I really, Harriet, I'm, you know, really moved that you're here because I do think that one of the things for the future that we have to do more rigorously is think about open access precisely for people who are not in um, necessarily situated in institutional spaces and how crucial it is to democratize that kind of, um, you know, access to knowledge production. Um, so I think that's definitely one thing that, you know, 
we as IPS should be thinking about, we as JPS should be thinking about. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say keep looking <laughs> and, 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 and I think it'll provide a very clear map of, of what's out there and your contribution to it. And then you also asked, is there an opportunity for me to share a part or a, a component of it? And I would say, yes, you know, again, I think it would be important in that context to see what has JPS published um, historically on this, what has it published in the contemporary sense, and then to kind of um, experiment with a 6,000 to 8,000 word part of this book. Um, I think one of the things that we overlook in knowledge production is the crucial and unseen work of editors and reviewers, right? Um, writing is a collaborative process and actually much of the writing takes place after the piece is submitted. Um, and so sometimes even submitting your work is the best way to understand um, how to improve it. So I would encourage you definitely to do that. I think we have, we have one question in the Q&A and I think we'll make this our last question unless, you know, if, if somebody else would like to ask something, please, please feel free. Um, so this person is asking beyond writing more succinctly, do you have any suggestions for how to include as many endnotes as possible without cutting into the larger word limit of the article? How do you navigate that relationship? Could the shift to digital offer a more expansive citational practice? You want to take this screen or should I? As you wish. We can both weigh in. I mean, I would just say, you know, like my book, somebody was pointing out to me yesterday, 150 pages. <laughs> the last third of it is 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 the is then is then notes. So I'm probably not the best person to ask. I wouldn't worry about the word count. I would not see the endnotes as a problem of word count. I would see the endnotes as crucial to what you're doing. And I would hone in on your argument, everybody that you wanna cite. And when you get to a place where you gotta get it down to 10,000 words, you'll be surprised at how much we can trim um, without hurting, without compromising those kinds of things. So I would say, Cite who you need to cite, and read who you need to read, and worry about the and worry about the word count at a later point. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit like Shireen. I tend to carry on arguments and debates in the footnotes with other people, obviously. Um, some of which probably should be elevated into the text and some of which should probably be cut. And good editors have told me again and again, why in God's name did you put this here? Or, you know, uh, this has to be in the text. Um, so I, I agree with Shane, don't, don't really, don't, don't over, over worry about this. Um, what you really need to cite, cite. And what, you, what, is, what is important to the argument should probably be in the body of the text. Um, and, you know, beyond that, let it go. And, and other eyes, if, 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 if there's substance to the piece to begin with, 
other eyes will tell you that maybe the balance should be this or maybe the balance should be that. So I, I wouldn't over overthink this specific aspect, but I, I have to recognize as did Shireen that this is a problem for all of us. Um, I mean, all of us have humongous, humongously long notes. Uh, the last book I did has only 35 pages of notes and that's you know, very unusual for me. Um, so we, we all sympathize and I, I wouldn't worry enormously about it. Thank you both. Um, we have one more question. Uh, this person is wondering, um, general question to you as academics, what are examples of your writing slash reading routines and some tips you could give us as students and early career scholars on developing such habits? Rashida, I'd love to hear what are your practices? I've never actually asked you that. Well, now, now you get a chance to. Uh, <laughs> um, I have to say my practices have changed over time as I've become more, um, as I've been burdened with more tasks. Um, I used to read everything beginning to end. I don't anymore. Uh, I don't have the time for it. And I've also narrowed down what I read. Um, I'll read more intensely and more intensively in the things that really interest me. And I think things that I think are important to my own work and things that I would otherwise have loved to look at, I just will spend literally half an hour looking at. I will not read carefully. Uh, I just don't have the time for it. I have a pile of books uh, of, on Palestine or on modern Arab history or on th other things that interest me um, that I, um, I know I will never read cover to cover. Uh, and I don't expect to have the time to do it. Nothing, there's nothing for it. Uh, and that's partly a result of the plethora of riches that's now available in the fields that I'm interested in. Uh, when I was a graduate student long, long ago, um, there wasn't that much out there that one had to read. Uh, the field was relatively barren compared to what it is now. I'm talking about modern Middle East history generally, but that's even more true of anything to do with Palestine. The library was one shelf or two shelves. In Arabic, if you counted Arabic and other languages, maybe six or five shelves. Um, that's just not the case today. So that's the first thing. The second thing is read outside your field. Um, don't just read Palestinian history. Read in feminist theory or, 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 or women's history. Read um, medieval history. Read um, visual studies, read art, read in art history, read in archeology, span read whatever is interesting to you. But that getting out of a, a rabbit hole, getting out of a silo to my way of thinking in terms of your reading um, always is beneficial to the work you do in your own, in your own, in your own field. Um, if you can learn to speed and read, I mean, if you have to read a, te a text cover to cover, uh, it really helps if you can read it fast. Now, Speed reading means that you probably will have to go back over it at some stage to extract stuff. And speed reading while marking is something that I try and do. So I mark the stuff and I read it, but I know that I'll come back to it. But at least then I know where to come back to. And when I'm reviewing a book, that's what I do. I read as quickly as I can the whole book. And I mark the things that I know I'm gonna to need to come back to in the review. And you can't write, I can't write a review otherwise. Um, and you know, for when you're preparing for comprehensives, this is a tip I sometimes give to graduate students. And it's something that probably would be useful for certain kinds of research. Uh, then there are some things you just have to read very, very carefully. The denser, the more theoretical, you know, the less well-written, that has to be read very carefully to get the, to get the meaning. 
Um, and that's even more true in other languages uh, or, or equally true in some and more true in others. Uh, and it depends on what kind of literature you're reading. Um, I, I read a lot of medieval history because I find it distracting. It's a great distraction from the horrors of modern, modern Middle East and Palestine today. Uh, I just go back to the 12th century and I'm, I'm free. I'm, I'm escaped. <laughs> I'm not recommending that, but have, have a rabbit, have that kind of a, of, a, of a place from which you can see things differently. I got the title of my last book from reading medieval history. I mean, I wouldn't have ever thought of the Hundred Years' War if I weren't reading about the Hundred Years' War. Um, so uh, th those would be some tips. Uh, and that's, those are my current reading habits. That's not how I read when I was 30 or 20 or 40, but that's how I read now. Um, yeah, reading habits. I mean, one thing I always sort of, I appreciate now that I didn't before is you're, you're never really quite as smart as you are when you're a grad student. Um, in the sense that when you're a graduate student, you're, you're really, you're reading, you're reading across fields and disciplines, um, all the time. And I think for me, one of the things you know, just like Rashid was saying, like really trying to read outside your comfort zone. One thing that I've been doing that has really kind of been um, exciting for me is to approach the graduate seminars that I take part in as um, classes for me as well. So, you know, I will ask one of the PhD students that I'm lucky to work with and say, you can lead us in this syllabus according to your specific interests so that we create this subfield and try to make it so that everything that I'm reading is absolutely new to me. So I'm kind of taking the class. I'm just facilitating it um, along with everybody else. So the question that becomes really a challenge here is, is time because finding the time to read in all of these multiple different registers is, is a challenge. Um, the, more, the more commitments that you have um, as, as in, 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 in academia, which you know, the, the kind of commitments grow exponentially <laughs> as you go up sort of um, the different um, um, you know, stages. So, so that's one thing that's a challenge, but I think definitely being, um, going outside your comfort zone and really seeing teaching as crucial to, to reading. Um, uh, I, I don't think I ever fully understand a book until I read it. And that's because as Rashid is saying, you basically have to read so carefully to actually be able to teach something. Um, and that's also the case for the undergraduate classroom that allows you to be um, a very, that forces you to be a really deep reader um, and bring complicated ideas um, uh, in, in an accessible form um, to large groups of people. And as for writing, in an ideal world that I have totally abandoned <laughs> this quarter, but ideally um, it, it's, it's important to try and be connected to the projects that you're in every day, even if it's just for half an hour of writing, free writing, um, loose writing, experimental writing. I think being in it every day um, is a real, really important, um, um, you know, like a tactic to remain connected. It's one that I 
um, it's very aspirational for me. I let it go when things get really busy, but I, but I really do believe that when you're connected to writing every day, that makes a big difference. Thank you both. Um, the next question is, do you have any advice for someone who is in the stage of wanting to publish an article for JPS, drawing from a dissertation chapter? Should I, should I start with this, Shereen? Um, I see you nodding, okay. Um, I mean, this is always a good idea, um, but remember that what my dissertation advisor told me long, long ago when I was trying to turn my dissertation into a book, uh, you're writing a dissertation for the four or five examiners. You're not writing it for a general audience. So as you revise a chapter for submission to a journal, or as you revise your dissertation for submission as a book, uh, you have to think of it in a different way. You have to frame things differently. You have to understand that the four or five specialists to whose eyes only your writing is directed as a PhD student uh, are not the audience that you're writing for in the Journal of Palestine Studies or it, when, when, you, when, you, when you transform your, your dissertation into a book. You're, you're thinking of, you should be thinking of a much broader audience. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, there are many other things, I guess, to think about. Um, there's a professional thing, which is you don't want to publish too much of your dissertation uh, in journal articles, because then you'll have trouble publishing the whole dissertation as a book. So maybe one chapter uh, at most. Uh, some people are willing to you know, be, act riskily and publish more than that, but it's usually not a good idea to publish more than one chapter of a dissertation uh, separately as a magazine article, as a journal article. Um, in order to be able to tell the prospective publisher of your manuscript that this is entire, almost entirely new material, except for chapter two. And another thing is usually a chapter is going to be a lot longer than what we would want as a submission for the journal. So take out a chunk of it uh, that is, you know, of more general interest or is a really unique insight that you've, that you've, that you've had and make that the core of the chapter and then rewrite it as, as, as an article. I mean, that I should say the, the core of the article you want to submit and make, make that article uh, something slightly different from what you have in the chapter. That way you can honestly say an excerpt or a, a highly revised excerpt from this chapter was published as an article. Um, and it will be different. It'll look different and should look different. Uh, in terms of later publication of the manuscript. Do you have any other tips, Shane, for the specifics of, of what you would do to transform a chapter to an article? I mean, I would say, just like you said, you know, a dissertation, I think of, so, you know, this, these are, this is um, uh, biased by being a historian, but I think of the, my dissertation as, the arc, as my archive, um, not so much like, the analysis or the writing. I mean, it was the basis for which I came out with a book, but I, exactly as she is saying, I think a people will send us dissertation chapters, <laughs> you know, as it's, and it's like, no, this isn't, this is not what you send in to get reviewed. And a dissertation chapter does not an article make, right? Um, so focus in, one or two things that you want us to understand 
Um, make sure that you're weaving in the literature, not forefronting it. Forefront your own original material, whether it's ethnographic, archival, or, you know, as we said before, that has to be the more you can forefront your original material and weave in what and how you are speaking to the literatures that you're engaging um, the better, you know, I think people tend to think that arguments have to be big arguments that they did. And, and, and I think the secret is to focus in on one or two arguments. And again, forefront your findings and your insights and weave in everything else. So that's not how we're trained to write dissertations. So it's a different genre of writing. We have two more questions. The first is, how do you balance committed writing towards Palestinian liberation and the confines of disciplines, um, disciplinary or academic writing? That's a tough one. I mean, well, I mean, a tough one and not, right? Like, I think that a lot of people see the intellectual work and the pedagogical work. For me, that is political work. They're, they're not, they're of a piece. They're not separate. So that's one of the ways that I survive, that I see that, for example, in my book, that I was recovering Palestinian history and also critiquing it. And that is how I believe we can approach and think about liberation for our people and all, and all peoples. So that's number one. Number two, the, the other part of the question is about the confines of disciplinary writing, which I think is something that's a little bit different from how do you navigate sort of your commitment to I wouldn't say iltizam or committed writing as much as I would say a kind of liberatory um, principle, which is a little bit different. But um, I think that that's an ongoing project I, I feel, which is that I feel like I've been super confined in the past within the historical discipline to evidence myself and write in a certain way. And that since I have felt more secure with tenure and a book out and all of that, that now I'm letting myself write in a more experimental register. Um, but my hope is that as more of us do that experimental writing, that that will um, make opportunities for the generations to come so that you don't have to wait <laughs> for stability before you do um, experimental writing. And I think that's another thing that's really important to keep in mind um, in this field, which is that as we are kind of breaking new ground, we are often doing it not for our generations, but for the generations to come. And I think that register of experimental writing is something that's happening more broadly. Yeah, let me just add a couple of things. So I, I agree with everything, as I always do, I agree with everything that Shane just said. Um, I think you, there are two things to remember. The first is that commitment towards Palestinian liberation and principles of liberation um, can be exercised in a variety of ways. Um, all of your work to shatter the shackles of colonialism and to end the miserable situation of your people 
doesn't necessarily have to come through disciplinary and academic channels. You know, we are multiple human beings, each of us, and you should be doing, I hope, and are I'm sure doing multiple things. Uh, don't think that every act of your life from child rearing to, you know, the job you do to, 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 is, has to be directed towards that. Ideally, it should be something that's in your mind, but, um, and so not everything you do in disciplinary or academic terms has to necessarily have that as your only focus. And the, 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 the key thing is this, don't think that doing that is real politics. It is important though, because one of the things that Edward Said first, you know, I think articulated is that part of this is a battle over narratives. And anything we do within our disciplinary fields, even if we're not activists, even if we're not overtly political, uh, helps to shatter the, 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 the discursive chains that are, that, are, that are holding people back. Um, so even if it's not, uh, you know, even, even if, it, if, if it is not what I would call real politics going out there and actually changing the world, it changes the world in an indirect way. Because what we, th those disciplines and those, those academic fields are so, so important to sustaining a false narrative and changing that false narrative is, is, is partly a function of what we've all been doing in academia. Um, one reason that you have SJP and JVP and one reason you have BDS resolutions is because hundreds and hundreds of academics have written thousands and thousands of articles and books over 20 or 30 or 40 years and have changed the minds of literally hundreds of thousands of young students. So that work in and of itself has value in terms of liberation insofar as it relates to discursive and, 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 and narrative issues. But there's real politics also real, real politics. And that, I mean, that you do or you don't do, depending on your own bent and your capabilities and your orientation and how much you dare do. And then the last thing I'll say is, is, is related to what Shane just said. Um, I tell my own graduate students this and they systematically don't listen to me, but I'll say it anyway. Um, you do want to get a job and you do want to get promoted and you do want to get tenure. And once you've done those things, you will have an ability to affect the narrative and affect discourse. And we'll have a freedom to do the kind of writing that Shireen is now, now doing or the kind of writing that I've started doing um, more recently uh, in the last couple of decades. Because, because when you do have tenure and when you do have a, 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 an academic position, you can do things that you can't do otherwise. I didn't follow that advice myself, okay? And most of my students don't follow that advice, but I'm giving it to you for free um, uh, to take as you, as you wish. And our last question for this for this session is, what do you recommend for pre-PhD scholars looking to publish work or start their journey into academia? Um. I guess I would recommend the same things that I would recommend for PhDs, right? Which is to read capaciously, to read generously, um, to focus in on something that you're interested in and uh, dig deeper and, and really to start with questions, not answers, right? Um, to, to, to have 
some sense of what is it that you want to grapple with and to be open to um, the, the possibility that when you start doing the research, you're going to um, be faced with a whole number of questions that you may not have thought um, were important otherwise. So yeah, read capaciously, um, uh, explore, uh, investigate, and be open to your assumptions uh, uh, being challenged. And I would also say really importantly, um, acquire languages. Language acquisition is really crucial to success in this in multiple fields, and um, it it tends to be something that is um, easier to get grants for, right? So if you're interested in the Ottoman era, uh, learn Ottoman Turkish, right? Um, if you want to study the Israeli state, learn. Hebrew, um, take the, you know, make those commitments. And I think often for people who, um, whether you want to go on into a PhD or not, I think um, that commitment to language acquisition is a real tool that will allow you to see things from multiple angles.